Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, um, which now feels so long ago that dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I was a pterodactyl uh, <laughs> back then. Uh, this week, we're discussing work by the director Joanna Hogg, focusing on 2019's The Souvenir. In a slight departure from our usual format, we agree with the hype. Indeed, we, would have, we, yeah, woo, we would have even welcomed more among a wider circle of people. Uh, we are very pro-Joanna Hogg and very pro-The Souvenir, as well as earlier films like 2010's Archipelago. Although art house director du jour, she wasn't always thus, cutting her teeth on the likes of Janet Street Porter uh, for Channel 4 and directing episodes of Casualty and EastEnders. It wasn't until 2008 that her first arty delight feature film appeared in the form of Unrelated, about a childless 40-something on holiday in Tuscany with a friend's family. 2010 saw Archipelago, 2013 Exhibition, and then 2019 The Souvenir, which was the breakthrough, obvious by the fact that Martin Scorsese agreed to be the executive producer. What a long way she's come from casualty. Um, the Souvenir takes its title both from the idea of a memoir, that this is really based on Joanna Hogg's own experience of being a film student back in the 1980s, but is specifically a reference to a painting from uh, that wonderful 18th century painter Fragonard um, of a young girl kind of carving the name of her beloved on a tree. And indeed, there is a kind of very clever intertext in the film in that the girl in the painting, which they go and visit together, the lead characters, is called Julie because she is the lead character of Rousseau's novel. Um, and when they go and look at this painting in the Wallace collection, um, the female character says, oh, she looks sad. And the male character, Anthony, says, no, she looks determined. And I think there's something very interesting about the way that Joanna Hogg uses art to suggest the different readings that you can imply, the kind of mysteries and the enigmas that might be at work um, within kind of uh, works of art and works of art like her own films. Um, if I can just say a little bit about the hype, um, it won the 2019 Sundance Grand Jury Prize. Uh, it came number one in the sight and sound uh, list of films of the year for 2019. And Time Out said, the souvenir feels like the only film in the world, the only one that matters. Um, so yeah, huge critical adulation, even if among a general public, I think it hasn't been quite as successful. I mean, it was that time outline, in all honesty, that roped me in. I thought, well, if this is the only film that matters or that I need to see, well, I better see it. So, so I was definitely a sucker for that, and I was rewarded for being so. So as you said, Tom, The Souvenir is a semi-autobiographical account of Joanna Hogg's own experiences at film school. It follows Julie, um, in this film actually played by Tilda Swinton's daughter, Honor Swinton Byrne. Tilda Swinton is also in the film playing the character's mother. Um, so it follows Julie, a shy film student from an upper middle class family in the early 1980s. She meets an older enigmatic man called Anthony and is seduced. Anthony moves in and Julie's life is utterly taken over by him. She is drawn further and further into the affair, despite increasing signs that Anthony is not who he says he is and in fact lives a dangerous secret life. And it's worth just saying that this flat that Anthony conveniently um, 
moves into um, or ingratiates himself into is, is, a, is a pied a terre in Knightsbridge. And um, Julie's parents have a big house in North Norfolk. So just to give it some of that class context, indeed class, Tom, is that not one of the defining features of Joanna Hogg's brilliance, the way she handles it and of this film? I think Joanna Hogg is the genius of making movies about the British middle classes. Um, and I actually think it's quite unusual to see such a treatment. Um, the middle classes, for some reason, have fallen out of fashion as the subject of drama, as the subject of narratives. And if you think about recent uh, British filmmakers, um, both kind of classics like you know, Ken Loach, but also new female voices like Andrea Arnold, they're usually telling the stories of the working classes. You know, they're particularly interested in people on the margins and the kind of precarious classes. Uh, whereas this is unapologetically a study about privilege. And it has a very, very narrow kind of lens of vision. Like it's really interested in the mores and the anxieties of the British middle classes. Um, and perhaps it's not an accident that it's the British middle classes who overwhelmingly have responded to this movie. How far do you think, Zoe, is it's become a kind of privileged sort of movie? As much as it's a critique of privilege, I mean, even going to see this thing felt like a kind of middle-class ritual. Oh, well, I mean, I went to see it at the Curzon in Bloomsbury. I probably had a glass of wine in hand when I saw it, <laughs> and Joanna Hogg herself was there afterwards for a Q&A, and I asked a question. It was immensely within the kind of, not just middle-class, but a kind of... Um, wannabe intellectual and I put myself down completely as a wannabe intellectual um, middle class uh, someone who can appreciate sort of these more these finer takes on on society so I think I think this was a middle class hit for a certain kind of middle class person and and it was it was looking at middle class situations in extremely high definition and for that reason it was sort of very attractive and alluring and I think this idea that we associate the the world of the art house with Europe or basically anywhere but here in recent years, um, it, was, it was really refreshing to be able to think, okay, actually there's this English answer to this, this, this kind of art house film and cinema. And I think we lapped that up. I think there was just a lot to recognize. Um, one of the things that I found very kind of refreshing and interesting about this film, and one of the interesting things about the audience is the audience will go to any length to say that they are probably pretty woke, pretty progressive, pretty keen on combating class snobbery and, and racism and what have you. And I'm certainly a fan of all of those aims as well. But, that, but this, was, this was holding up a mirror to, to a middle-class way of life that the audience will have recognized. And it was curiously skimpy on diversity. So this was a film that was not interested in the standard diversity narrative. There's nothing to do with race in this. There's nothing to do with sexuality, really. Oh, there might be to do with sexuality. But it's, um, it really is, in the end, a very hermetically sealed study of middle classes. And I think it's, you know, it's interesting that that's what was so attractive in the end to the very middle classes that might seek to get outside of that. I think you're right to say, Zoe, it's a hyper-specific kind of movie. Um, and although it's been pitched as, you know, a generic kind of coming-of-age story, there is nothing generic about having a pied de terre in Knightsbridge, um, about having a country house in Norfolk, about having someone like Tilda Swinton as your mother. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a story which is about very singular kind of experiences. Um, and I loved the fact that it was unapologetically about the few, because what yes. it did is it then sort of zoomed in and studied this kind of petri dish, this kind of very small privileged world with incredible insight. I mean, I really thought it kind of observed things very closely. Um, on that point, Julie in the film 
um, plans initially to go and make a documentary about Sunderland. You know, she's determined to try and escape from her privileged background and she wants to go and do a sort of film project in uh, 1980s kind of ravaged by Thatcher Sunderland. And instead, the kind of message of the movie is not just that she loses her faith in that project, but that the movie shows that probably a better use of her brain is to look closer at her own experience and to look closer at the world around her. Um, so while Joanna Hogg in life did indeed go up to Sunderland, and there are some lovely photos from her in the movie that appear as Julie's project, what I love about the souvenir is its ability to kind of take this forensic view, to realize that kind of less is more when it comes to telling a story, um, and to instead sort of use that anthropological gaze that we often assume with watching the working classes to now think about middle-class rituals, to think about the kind of middle-class habits. Um, what kind of middle-class rituals struck you as being important well, in how Joanna Hogg thinks about the upper bourgeois life? Well, funny you should mention it, Tom. I mean, I inevitably have an eye for things to do with eating and drinking and food and wine. And one thing that really, you know, comes up with agonizing clarity in the souvenir as well as in archipelago which i just recently rewatched, is the the tensions that bubble to the surface over these mealtime rituals well you know meals um when the the things are not at ease between the people sitting at the table and what you get is these kind of opulent very english lunches you know bowls piled high with buttered potatoes um plates full of cheese and meat it could be guinea fowl that's just been brought, plucked and brought in and you know plenty of red wine around and a red wine on the mantelpiece but what you get is that you've got all this food you've got all this ritual in place but there's a complete void or hollow at the center of it all and these people do not know what to say to each other they do not know how to say it and there's all this kind of stuff perhaps below the surface it's, it's what's interesting is that it's not the sense that things are bubbling up it's the sense that there perhaps just isn't anything or that what there is just doesn't fit with with what the social setting demands so i think she is the master or should i say the mistress of the <laughs> of the agonized middle class meal the, the sound of the plates the sound of the food being chewed the sound of people passing wine i think she just does it wonderfully and the other thing tom that i noticed it's it, again it's all very cleverly done with her is the color scheme of the of these films it's very monochrome and it's these pastels muted pastels and and cloudy overcast weather it's almost like when you're an upper middle class person you don't need to like trouble yourself with anything so vulgar as you know sunny blue skies <laughs> so so actually but what she does is rather than this being dreary it's shot through with an elegance and it's a sort of pharaoh and ball style <laughs> color scheme and even though what she's doing obviously is presenting a, an earlier period in the case of the souvenir she's she's doing the, the 1980s she's she is recapturing slightly different sounds and textures and lights and looks but it's still got that st recognizable thrum of colors and textures, whether it be the kind of Ottoman rugs in the parents' house, the, or the flannel throws over the chairs mm. in their enormous sitting room. Um, the colors are kind of going to be very familiar as well to the, both the realities and the desires of the audience. Completely. And it's so opulent in some ways, uh, often with a slightly kind of gauzy quality, these sort of desaturated colours. As you say, it's supremely tasteful, like a lot of these interiors are almost oppressively tasteful, um, which is itself, you know, part of the, the mystery of kind of middle class life. It's interesting that you say it's set in the 1980s, um, because in some ways, visually, it feels like a period drama. You know, it looks like the kind of work by Merchant Ivory. You know, movies like Room with a View or Howard's End, but now being kind of 
you know, used to understand her own uh, time at film school in the 80s. Um, and although the 80s is there sort of on the, on the horizon, you know, there's references to the Libyan embassy, there's references to the IRA. Actually, what's interesting is that these are two young people in some ways who are deliberately rebelling against bits of the 80s. Although he looks a bit like a new romantic when he sort of swaggers around in his jacket, Anthony. Um, in other ways, they're young fogies. You know, they're mm -hmm. filling her very beautiful flat um, with period furniture. You know, they're listening to vinyls. They're listening to cassettes, which is more 80s. This is a very analog kind of era, interestingly. Yeah. Um, and a lot of his references, what he represents for her is a kind of old world kind of class. You know, he's teaching her about 1940s and 50s movies. There's a vintage feel to their whole life. And what I, what I like in Joanna Hogg is that all those elements, they're there, but there's also maybe something slightly ominous about them. You know, there's something maybe slightly menacing about those period details. They made me think of Hitchcock in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, that, that brings us to the, the sort of troubling gender um, riddles and mysteries at the, at the heart of all this. Or, I mean, maybe they aren't mysteries. So I think this what probably what, what reminded me of Hitchcock, if anything, is the way that this woman is basically being manipulated um, uh, oh, well, maybe that's not a fair comparison. Yeah, is, that, is that too strong? I don't know. So, I, I mean, I think there's a sinister sense of, of not knowing quite what's going on. What are you dealing with? And I think what is so interesting in the way she makes her films is this insistence on, on these silences and absences that aren't just cheap, like awkward making. The awkwardness in themselves is getting at something that is seriously awry. And in Archipelago, there's these, the dinner table situation is just all about the most agonizing silences. But meanwhile, the problem is there's a giant absence at the heart of it, which is that the, the husband who's supposed to come and be with the family sort of never quite comes. He's always a voice on the other end of the line. Equally in the souvenir, there's a sort of, uh, I think a, there's an absence problem with the, with the lead character. I mean, the man that she falls for, Anthony, he turns out to not be who he says he is. It, the more you get to know him, the less you know of him. And what he says doesn't add up. So, so he kind of distorts any sense of solidity or things being what they seem to be. So I think she lets the characters get on with it in a very quiet way suddenly those quietnesses and those those were well not suddenly over time those quietnesses and those absences start to fill with sinister menace i think as you say and i think for me that's very much tied up with the gender aspect of it the, the male female relationships the hints of exploitation even the hints of sort of certain types of erotic play that are sort of very much what he wants but but who knows if she wants them because she's so she's so kind of innocent did you pick up on that sinister feeling tom around the sex i think the sex is definitely sinister and some of that those hints that there is something quite domineering about him not just controlling of what she reads and how she dresses but perhaps controlling in physical ways as well is very much captured in that scene when they go to venice which yes. in some ways is the great symbol of a place that is perhaps kind of sinister menacing and beautiful all at the same time i just wanted to say just a little bit more about the enigma because it's it's sort of related to Joanna Hogg's interest in art more broadly. And you talked about this as a deliberately arty movie, both in the way that it's shot, but also in the interests of her protagonists. Um, and I said sort of earlier on that there's all these sequences of them going into galleries. You know, they go to the Wallace collection. Uh, they sit in these kind of stately homes surrounded by kind of all of these artworks. And I think what I love in Joanna Hogg is that just like when you're looking at a painting, 
you know, you're being asked as an audience to keep thinking what's going on. Like there's this indeterminacy, this kind of fatal ambiguity in so much of the sort of visual world around them. Um, and it's actually interesting in that this is how it was even written into the film that um, when she agreed to do it, Honor Swinton Byrne didn't have a script. You know, she didn't know the arc of the story when she started playing the role. So there's something about, as an actress, her being naive, her being an innocent, being drawn into something that she doesn't fully see and fully understand that really is related to this kind of seduction in all kinds of ways that he exerts over her. The other thing that fills the silence there when there are these gaps is the music. And actually, if everything is not being spoken, as you say, Zoe, if there's something that hangs in the air, the way she uses music in this, Anthony is a huge opera lover. And the music that you hear again and again on the vinyl is Bartok's Bluebeard's Castle. And so if you're listening as, an, as a member of the cinema, cinema audience, you're being told about him as a vampire, as someone who's preyed on other women, who might have a terrible past of other kind of dead wives. There's such a menace that hangs over him. And I think the way that she uses art and the way that she uses culture to suggest that something's not right and that there's something going on behind the scenes is kind of inspired. I mean, do you think, Tom, that there's any comparison to be made or rather contrast to be made of interest between, for instance, a class study like this and Downton Abbey. <laughs> I, I just think we have to think, it's thinking a bit kind of like about where this might sit in terms of other treatments that we've had of, of class. And I think the point is, as I, you know, maybe it's not a comparison, but the point is if you think about what's been a huge, what, what becomes hugely popular, it's always about class. You can think of, you know, The Crown, it's Downton Abbey, it's, it's, it's something usually period drama-esque, but not necessarily too far in the distant past. I mean, The Crown certainly will end up going up to the present day or nearabouts. Um, but there's something, but I think it's interesting then to think about how this fits with that kind of thing. And I think what clearly it's doing is being something radically different. And I think that's just a, a useful foil for thinking about again her use of color her use of silence and how this is a picture of of class and upper class really um that is done through guesswork and and taking things away rather than these very received ideas of high of, of the high life really and in fact you you've talked a lot about how beautiful her flat is and how beautiful the interiors are i actually think what's interesting is that what's truly upper middle class about the flat is that it's not showily beautiful it's it's quite regular it's just got green carpeting it's got a wall that's a kind of made of square mirrors it's got um a, just a very regular looking ikea-esque sofa in it and a very kind of bog standard kitchen but it just happens to be opposite harrods so when the ira bomb goes off in harrods she hears the explosion um, so I just, she I does just have a giant 18th century bed just to go back to that yeah. kind of Julie intertext and the interest in letters and sort of detective work and sort of a sort of almost an epistolary kind of romance, which is what this is as well. She does have this amazing antique bed, but I agree with you. It's, it's so tastefully put together. That little perfect world that they live in is not showy. Would you think that there's any overlap in audience between people who like Downton Abbey and people who like this? <laughs> Uh, aside from my mother, who I know is in both camps, I don't think, and she's an absolute kind of cultural glutton. I think no is the answer. I think Down That Beat is essentially a, a soap opera and a pretty celebratory, feel-good, nostalgic soap opera about upstairs-downstairs relations. I think this, there's something much more ambitious and much more unsettling about it in the way that it's dealing with class. It reminded me, actually, of something like Alan Hollinghurst's recent novels, 
where yeah. again you go back to a kind of core of period fiction you know like almost like rewriting Ian Forster or something but to bring out elements in it that are much more disturbing or much more discordant so it feels like she's she's almost subverting that tradition of like the period piece well but in a way it's what's innovative is that she's doing it on film because obviously Hollingshurst is a novelist and novels can lend themselves to various gradations of nuanced depiction that you might think films can't but um, you know, she is doing something different here because I was thinking, okay, well, maybe I was just kidding with the Downton Abbey <laughs> comparison, but maybe what we ought to be thinking about more are other attempts recently on TV to portray this kind of a milieu in various dramas. And, and they are pretty crass. I mean, that's not to say that I haven't loved them all, but thinking of, I don't know, Dr. Foster on ITV about the crazed, <laughs> you know, doctor driven mad by her cheating husband um, or, or Liar also on ITV about a rape um, or um, the, the nest, uh, which was about a very, very wealthy family trying to find a surrogate uh, to have a baby. So it was these full are, of property porn. Full of property porn. My mother porn. said the houses were amazing. The, the houses were absolutely incredible. Wanderlust, another one with Tony Collette about a couple experimenting with polyamory. Again, all about these big houses, big kitchens, the kinds of fruit bowls that you can expect to find in a big middle-class kitchen. So I think it's, there are sort of little, signs of the fascination in tv culture but i think to take it as seriously as she does and to basically do a kind of howard's end treatment on on something much more unexpected is is definitely that does genuinely seem to be fairly unique i might be wrong with that no i i totally agree zoe and it's interesting how literary in some ways it feels i mean one comparison that's been made of the anthony character is is there something a bit you know Heathcliff about him? Is there something a bit Byronic about him? He does feel like a classic sort of old boy seducer that you might find in a kind of 19th century novel, a man with a mysterious past. Um, Zoe, I think this is where you and I disagree. I did find something seductive about Anthony. Um, as much as he's conceited and as much as he's arrogant and he sort of has this performative, you know, tough kind of identity, I did see why she was drawn in. I, a thousand times, don't see why she was drawn in or rather <laughs> i see i see why she was drawn in in the sense that any you know perhaps young woman um who's looking for an intellectual mentor might be drawn in it might be the same reason you know young women are drawn to their professors he was trying to fulfill that kind of role and but but really he just i just found him so blatantly exploitative i mean it's just so cringy when he says oh i need to stay for a few days if it's a problem don't worry about it just kind of insinuates himself into her life in such an obvious way and she finds herself asking for money i mean all the red flags red flag red flag red flags and she just absolutely goes for it because she's very kind of open she's trusting and i think that's the interesting point i think that to the contemporary eye she really does seem incredibly trusting i mean more trusting than a woman an equivalent woman today would be and i think one of the reasons for that is that we have terminology now for things like gaslighting, which Anthony mm. does to her all the time. You know, there has been this ter this revolution in sexual languages that allow women to name all the sort of surreptitious things that men may do to them and perhaps vice versa. So there's that. And then there's this, the fact that life off the internet, I mean, we are inundated with various narratives and horror stories uh, that come not only from things to do with dating sites, but also just the news. Uh, and I think that pre-internet life quite possibly was a bit more trusting and in that funny period between the prim 50s and 60s and the the, the fully dangerous aids-ridden 80s 
uh, and then the kind of post-feminist 90s, I think there perhaps was a, a period in which you could be both sexually libertine if you wanted to, um, but without having to be too politicized about it or too mm. cautious about it. Uh, I think, you know, I think that that interesting moment before AIDS comes along. And in fact, one of the things that's very interesting about the film is the presence of AIDS. It does emerge. It's one of the sort of like monsters lurking in the shadows that Anthony brings into the flat. And there's this very disturbing moment when it, it re it's revealed that he's using lots of different needles for his heroin. He's bringing all kinds of people back into the flat and she falls very, very ill. And it's a flu, but that can also be a sign of AIDS taking hold. And it's mm. what, 1982 or something like that. So, uh, so there's a sort of hint there that she, that she leaves. And I, I actually asked her that question when I, after <laughs> I asked her that in question privileged viewing in my privileged Q and A. Yeah. And she, she was, she tried, she said that, um, yeah, she did want, uh, she did want us to wonder about, about whether Anthony had given her AIDS and, and she, mm. but she didn't, she refused to, she, or rather she refuted the idea that it was a, it was a simple kind of exploitation situation, which is obviously the way I see it, but not, not the way you see it. What did you make of the AIDS inclusion? I did think it was the kind of clearest sign of like the danger, as you say, that, that might be lurking beneath these otherwise sort of immaculate uniforms of respectability that uh, he's lounging around in for, for much of the film with his stories about working for the foreign office and so on. Um, I think in Anthony's defense, and obviously he's a, he's a deeply flawed and profoundly sinister character. Um, all I would say is that she learns from him and the film doesn't make her a simple victim. Judy isn't just sort of swept along by him, even though her privileged background strangely has made her more vulnerable you know she's she is a naive at the beginning you know she's kind of clueless she doesn't have a kind of way of understanding um you know the sexual danger that he represents but she also realizes she can learn from him and as i say if the arc of the film is both her you know the end of one phase of her creative project you know her giving up on the sunderland project it's anthony who's constantly driving her to make something else um at one point in the film he tells her we want to see life not as it is lived but is it ex as it is experienced within this soft machine. And so that interest in kind of the going inward, the kind of psychological state, the interest in mood, these are all now hallmarks of Joanna Hogg's work, you know, these moody, ambient kind of films. Um, and so in a strange way, the Anthony experience, not just through its trauma, but also through what he was able to teach her, has given her her kind of language of cinema. So I feel in a way, it, what's interesting about this is that it isn't a straightforward story of him as a vampire, picking on a sort of predatory young girl. The young girl knows she can learn through him. She knows she's attracted moth to the flame of the danger, but also the kind of knowledge mm. and the maturity that he represents. Well, that's what I said about the attraction of the older professor, but I still don't, I don't buy it because I think he's just, you know, that is, yes, that is what she's attracted to and good for her for trying to make the best of a bad lot. I mean, if he throws out the odd meaningful bon mot and she can turn that into a life's direction good for her i think she does and he he does sort of psycho babble at her you know he'll say things like you're not normal you're a freak yeah. but you know that's great you know it's so sexy that you're a freak essentially or you know you you're you're never going to be you're never going to know what you're doing or there's some scenes at the beginning where he's just clearly giving her sort of cod psychoanalysis and she absolutely falls for it hook line and sinker and any woman today has seen it a million times and it's it's uh, to me he, he is a very poignant figure, not because of he himself, but because he is a hollow man, a mm. pack of lies, and full of hot air. But she is able to create in him a thing of beauty. 
And I think that's what it's about. I think getting into gender is, is an interesting one. And I think that allows us to think sideways towards other people who've been interested in these high def class things like Mike Lee or Ken Loach. Are they doing anything similar with gender, do you think? With gender, I mean, it's interesting. I'd say the Mike Lee connection that's, that's very striking is that both of these uh, directors use improvised scripts. You know, there is no kind of pre-written um, script. There is instead like a broad scenario and then things are kind of improvised between the director and the actors, which is where all this amazing kind of naturalism comes from. You know, it feels yeah. incredibly fresh and it feels kind of incredibly lifelike. Um, in terms of how gender comes into it, um, I suppose the, the connection that I see is, you know, yes, there is this tradition of naturalistic cinema, but I'd think actually about all these films recently that have been about young women as artists, that there mm. is a big vogue at the moment for movies by female directors that are about women finding their creative voice. And I really like your point in a way, Zoe, that, you know, she maybe redeems him, that she turns him into a work of art as well as yeah. finding her own voice at the end of it. And yeah. um, it might be interesting to think about this fascination with kind of, movies by female directors about female protagonists mm. who are you know realizing themselves across the course of the movie i mean another huge hit last year um was portrait of a woman on fire by celine Sciamma. um much more box office hit little women by greta gearwig where all the focus is on joe now as a writer as a publisher as an author like finding her own voice and um, what do you make of this you know almost sort of again all period films in a way all looking back to mm. history but identifying women as the protagonists, as kind of artists in their own right. What do you make of that, Zoe? I think there's a very strong agenda these days to impose a emancipatory politics on the past. I think it's okay that there are these like female emancipation narratives. And I think this, this way of harnessing it to art, whether it be through picking up the pen or becoming a filmmaker or an artist, is is interesting i think i think it is interesting and i think it, it, it you know it may be a bit agenda driven i don't think in this case it is but i think more broadly in society i think i think art probably has been a, a, a absolutely crucial outlet for for women and it has genuinely been a way they've had a voice when they haven't otherwise i mean think of the brontes and of course mm -hmm. novels in general in the 19th century so i i think i think that's i think that is interesting um as long as it's done kind of well which it which it absolutely is done here uh so tom why why do you think there's there was so much adulation for this film why the hype so as you said at the beginning Zoe, we believe in the hype we subscribe we to the believe, hype. yeah we know why because we believe in it yeah for me uh i would say it's partly the slow burn of it you know it's the fact that it is a two-hour movie where you know, it is quite low on uh, on drama, let's say. It is extraordinarily kind of absorbative. You know, it's a kind of mesmerizingly slow movie in some ways, which is why a lot of viewers, I'm sure, are baffled by it, are bored by it, don't enjoy it. But I think in an age where we're so used to sort of films that are long and loud and full of explosions and noisy, this muted, slow, meditative film about something quite precise and something quite intimate feels really, really fresh. Um, and it makes me think that the hype for this is not dissimilar from the love for something like normal people, which again, zoomed in to a tiny kind of one couple and then just followed them in a very slow way. So I think it's about, it's partly about the, the sort of speed of the storytelling and the kind of enigma that is never really resolved that sort of sits at the heart of it. What about you, Zoe? 
Well, I, I will just take a slightly cruder line and say I think it's just the, the hypnotic navel gazing. Um, <laughs> uh, that, in all honesty, is, is what drew me in. I mean, I'm the first person to be bored or fed up, um, but it is just mesmeric. These, the textures, the sounds, the colors, the, the, the mealtimes, the cutlery, the sofas, and then, of course, the dynamics. I mean, the, the characters are extraordinarily expressive. It's, it's a total masterstroke of her to get people who aren't particularly actors and get them to be naturalistic and not have a script. And you, it could backfire horribly, but I think it doesn't backfire. If um, I can just add, Zoe, if you want more, Souvenir Part 2 is currently in production. So no, actually... I do want more. I want more. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm going to get more. But in the meantime, <laughs> jo join us next week for Beyonce's Lemonade and Stormzy's Heavy is the Head. <laughs>